Hey team of Eternal Optimists, it's Matt Drinkon here. And before we launch into today's epic conversation, I've got a big announcement. Drum roll, please. My brand new book is coming out on March 8th. And perhaps even better news, you can get it for only 99 cents on Amazon that day. We don't run ads on the show. And if you ever want to give back and support the Eternal Optimist community, go to Amazon on March 8th and get the Kindle version for only 99 cents. Just search for the book title, The Eternal Optimist. It's never too late. And you can download it directly to your device. Now, let's get to the show. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Eternal Optimist podcast. I'm your host, Matt Drinkon, and our guest today is none other than Mr. Hunter Durham. And Hunter has got an amazing story. I'll give you a couple of things about Hunter that I have researched and found. First of all, he tweets about babies and business. And a little bit of background, he has acquired four businesses for $3.8 million. He has experienced highs in success and he's experienced hard times, including some bankruptcy in some of the business. He is a loving family man. He's really passionate about that. He's a Christian, he's a husband, he's a father, he's amazing. And I can tell you that by looking at his tweet picture on X, he's got, and everyone in his family has amazing hair (laughs) and just a really good, genuine human from my first interaction with him so far. So with no further ado, I'd like to welcome Hunter to the show. Hunter, how are you today, my friend? I'm doing well, Matt. I appreciate you having me on. The hair is a continued theme. I should add that to the babies and business and hair seems to be uh, popping up quite a bit on Twitter as well. And so happy to be here. Happy to share my story. And I think the Eternal Optimist is a great place for me to be on. Sweet, man. I'm thrilled to be here with you. And the first thing that uh, I want to ask you about, I went down the rabbit hole and researching you a little bit. And one of the first things I found, like your first job back in the day, I was so thrilled to see this, that we have something in common. <laughs> it looks like back in the day, you sold Cutco knives back when you were in college. I'm curious to start there about that experience. What was your experience selling Cutco back in the day? Yeah. Yeah. So I actually sold Cutco, I guess it was either junior summer or senior summer of high school. So I loved it. Yeah, it was before I went to college because I went to college down in Florida and it was back when I was living in Springfield, Missouri, where I grew up. And it was honestly a great experience. I think the best part about Cutco is like, it is a great product. At the core of it, it is actually like fun to sell, like cutting pennies, sawing rope. It's actually just a fun sales presentation. But I think that was a pivotal moment in learning about business, learning about sales. I think- So many of those lessons just kind of apply as I kind of went through college and everything. And so it was definitely a successful summer. I got the big knife set. I still have the knives downstairs uh, and all of that. And so, uh, yeah, I'm a fan of Cutco, even though they are technically a multi-level marketing. I think they're one of the good ones out there where it's actually a really good product and people have those knives in their house for dozens and dozens of decades almost, you know, just passing down from one generation to another. So it's awesome to know that you're a fellow Cutco representative from back in the day. Oh, heck yeah, man. I still drink from a Cutco chalice. Uh, I got good friends in the company. I'm curious, did you do it in Texas or where's your office? Who was your manager back in the day? In Missouri. So I grew up in Springfield, Springfield, Missouri. My manager was Carly Michaelis, who I think went on to be a pretty big deal. 
And then her manager was, he's called like the lifestyle investor. I can't remember Justin, his last name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Friend, yeah. yeah Justin <laughs> Donald. Yeah, exactly. He was based in St. Louis at the time. And Carly Michaelis and, you know, rolled up to Justin during that time period. So that was the network at that point. Sweet. Yeah, Justin, get a kick out of that. I think he was episode 14, like a year ago. Uh, he's a good friend and a mentor. He's one of my coaches. Shout out to Justin. Shout out to Cucko. I want to shout Cucko whenever I can. I'm glad your experience was positive. If it weren't, then, well, we still keep rolling, <laughs> baby. We still keep rolling. No, it's, it's I, I great. I to ask you about your business experience. What drew me to you was you're a father, you're a family man with the heart who's been successful in business and has had some challenging times. And I'd, I'd love to just to hear your story and share it with the World Hunter. So if you could take us back to anywhere you like in your timeline and just start to share with us your business experiences, we'd love to listen. Yeah, I think the most relevant place to start is back at Facebook. So after college, I came right out, moved to Austin and started working at Facebook and kind of the high growth e-commerce account manager office down in downtown Austin. I loved that job. When I came in, it was basically, they gave us a cross vertical book of 50 different advertisers that were basically spending all ranges of money. And so I had Johnsonville sausages, I had Pacific Life Insurance. These were all like SMB accounts, basically. But you know, I had them and then I had a bunch of e-commerce clients. I had drug rehabilitation companies. And this was back in like 2017, when you could just put money in Facebook and get money out of Facebook. Really, what I tell people during that time is like 90% of my time was spent working on the business problems and 10% of my time was on Facebook because like they were successful just naturally putting money into Facebook. And the only way that I could hit my goals and get them to spend more money was to essentially make sure that all the roadblocks of inventory, creative, anything that had to do with scaling from a hundred thousand to a million dollars pretty quickly, getting them over the business roadblocks were like my main roadblock to success. And so a lot of the times I was working directly with the founders, the CEOs, the COOs to essentially hmm. kind of unlock those problems. So I left there and then I went and joined my largest client, I was with them for about six months. The main kind of guy and I are, are still really good friends, but he had two brothers at the time and I kind of butted head with the brothers and they owned a large portion of the company. And he called me one day, he's just like, I don't really know what to do. Like, they don't want you here. And I was like, eh, okay, that's fine. I don't want to be here if they don't want me here either. I was supposed to like travel to Canada three days. And, and so that guy's one of my best friends now, like the main guy and he runs an incredibly successful business. So after that, it's like, when I left Facebook, it was like, do I become an entrepreneur? Or do I go kind of join these guys? Essentially getting fired, more or less. It was like, okay, there's not an option anymore. It's like, I'm becoming an entrepreneur. That is the beginning of the last four years is I kind of looked around and I said, what do I want to do in the world? And the original thesis was, I want to pay people above average wages, make above average returns and still have money left over to go impact the world. So that is kind of like the founding thesis of impact industry. Then I kind of looked around, and I'm like, okay, who aggregates the most amount of wealth in order to achieve that? Because usually you have to give up one of those, you know, it's the trade off. You can pay people a lot of money, but then you're not making above average returns. You can make above average returns, but then you're probably not impacting the world with investors, with your investors breathing down your throat, hoping to get the highest return. So 
I looked around and I was like, okay, who aggregates the most amount of capital? And it was like Warren Buffett. It went down the traditional male hole. And this is 2019 before search funds and buying SMBs and all of that exploded during the COVID years. There was not that much information on it. It was a lot of this was just like self-taught. And most of the information was like the Stanford and the Harvard guys that would raise the $400,000 to go search for a business. It was at least at a time when the like self-funded search had started gaining traction. And so I joined the search funder community. I started putting together all the documents. I started reaching out to my network saying, hey, this is what I wanted to do. And then COVID happened. So basically in person, you know, the traditional model of like in person service business, all of that just like exploded and wasn't happening. But at the same time, e-commerce exploded. All of my skills that I just kind of had at Facebook now were in high demand. I ended up starting Impact Industry Marketing, which is the the marketing agency that I ran over the past few years. Basically, we hit $250,000 top line in the first year, and that continued to grow over the next four years. I looked at it as like, wow, I don't even need investor money now. I've grown a business, I got my own capital, and I can continue to buy these other businesses myself without having too many investors in it. And the reason I kind of tell it that way is because the vision was already existing of wanting to go and buy a bunch of businesses before the agency Mm -hmm. became successful. When the agency came successful, I was still relentlessly executing against that original vision of like, I'm going to go buy a bunch of businesses that are cash flowing to ultimately go impact the world. First year, we go under contract for the e-commerce website. Mm -hmm. That's an online e-commerce furniture store that closes in early 2021. Then we started shipping our furniture. We realized that when you buy a $5,000 couch, the customer experience of dropping it in your home is the most important part of the customer experience. So we essentially looked at it and we're like, hey, if we're ever going to be the best online furniture store, we need to control that process as well. I called the shipping company that we were using to complain, I'm pretty sure, because you know we didn't have any control of that experience. And he was like, I'm just tired. And I was like, well, are you interested in selling your business? Because I'm still in this like relentlessly pursuing this acquisition path. This original thesis is I'm just trying to relentlessly execute against that. He's like, I would be interested. I flew in there the next week. We basically came to an understanding of a price during that meeting. We go under LOI. And then about a month or two later, he still hasn't filed his tax returns. And that's like a big part of the SBA loan process. He sends an email to like my operations manager of the e-commerce business saying, effective immediately, we're dropping 14 states. He was Ooh. he was servicing like 36 states. And he's like, we're dropping 14. I like call him. Weirdly, though, it's like there was some peace about it. I wasn't mad. I wasn't upset. I call him. I was like, hey, what's going on? He's like, well, we signed this new customer and they are a large customer and we need to increase our service levels. So we're decreasing the amount of states that we service and increase on our business with them to be able to kind of service that. I'm like, okay, great. Gross margins were basically double with this new customer. I'm like, that's all good. But we were basically Furniture USA. And how are we going to be Furniture USA if we only cover 20 states? He had mentioned during our initial meetings that he owned the building of a competitor in town. I was like, do you think he'd be interested in selling to it? And I was like, I think he would. He calls me back 15 minutes later. I call that guy and he's like, I wish you would have done this a month ago. He's like, the guy, he had a cash offer that all he had to do was sign. The guy had flown in from California that morning and then he had a broker letter on his desk to go and shop the business. 
I'm like, here's who I am. Here's what I'm trying to do. Here's the vision. Here's the story. You know, like the timing and all of this was incredible. He's like, well, if you can move quickly, I'll give you an opportunity. I get his numbers. I send him an offer the next day. And by the following day, he told the other guy to go jump in a lake. Wow. You know, <laughs> so you did all that due diligence. You figured all the numbers. All wow. And turn around in 24 hours. Yeah, not wow. a ton of due diligence, but definitely just like he already has a cash offer on the table. I can get his assets. I can get his profits. I can get his balance sheet. And I basically just added $50,000 to, you know, he was being offered like $1.15 And I said, your business is probably worth 1.2 just based on the cash flow. So then he told the other guy to kind of go jump in the lake. So yeah, that turned into two two deals. So it turned into like a small $600,000 deal to basically a two point. $6 million deal inclusive of real estate across two warehouses. So like it got really big, really fast. So then we went under contract with both of those. And then we closed those February of 2021. We were operating about a year before Mitchell Gold, Bob Williams, our largest customer ends up going bankrupt in 2023. Basically, that was my summer this year was trying to make sure that didn't happen. And then ultimately, they ceased operations at the end of August. And filed bankruptcy themselves. And right now, currently, my family and I are now going through bankruptcy as well. That's like the last four years in a really quick nutshell. Wow. Well, thank you for the authenticity and courage to share all of that real time live. Thank you for sharing that, Hunter, first. I'm curious, how does that impact you and your wife conversations about rising, growing the business? And now it's crumble, going into bankruptcy. What is that conversation like? The hardest conversations are like the little things, especially for her. We have a relationship. It's a more traditional relationship. She expects me to take care of most of the financial side of our life. And she gets to be a stay-at-home mom and she's dreamed of being a mom her whole life. So she does some more duties there. And I think the little things like, hey, our credit card's about to be shut off. And hey, Christmas might be a little light this year. It's like those are the bigger things that I think really impact those. On the flip side of it, though, Life has changed pretty significantly on a personal level since we started making a lot of these decisions. We've had two kids. We've moved to Puerto Rico. We have made some bigger life decisions. For us, there's a lot of pain, but there's also this blank canvas that we ultimately have right now that we get to draw, you know, hey, what exactly do we want life to look like? That's what we're drawing on right now. We're drawing on that canvas to essentially rebuild our life. So a lot of pain, but I think a lot of potential for the future. As you're sharing this, I can see you and your body language. You appear to be just very relaxed and cool and calm. And I'm just curious, have you always been like this kind of relaxed nature? As someone who has acquired businesses and has run big enterprises, is this your natural state to be this cool about these highs and lows because you're really cool about it all. Yeah, I do think one of my superpowers is the ability to just take on immense amounts of stress. Sometimes it could probably be a detriment of just like not care about the stress. I think there's a lot of things that go into that. I think the biggest one is I never had my identity in my businesses. I think that's a core piece of a lot of this specific situation because it comes from a fact too that like I got married when I was 20. I was going to college still when we got married. We got married after my sophomore year. Then we had our first child while I was still working at Facebook. All of the most important things in my life kind of occurred prior to all of this crazy last four years. Ultimately, those things aren't getting taken away from me in bankruptcy as well. 
I would rather have my businesses fail than my relationship with my wife fail and my relationship with my children fail. And so I think a lot of that comes into it. And then I think just my personality is, I remember there was a high school party. I had dreads in high school. So Native American, I'm pretty tan. You can probably tell, like I just get naturally tan and had dreads, grew up in a predominantly white area. But I was the cleanest dread guy you'll ever meet. I've never smoked <laughs> and I didn't drink in, okay. in high school. So this party gets busted, completely clean. I'm sober, but I'm like dressed up as an Indian, you know, because our high school was like the chiefs and I'm a Native American. I'm a registered Native American. So I have this Indian headdress, no shirt on, pants with full head of dreads. This cop is like trying to check everybody out and I'm just laughing at him. That is just my nature. It's just like when stress happens, go towards laughter. And that's how I deal with stress, I think, in a lot of situations. Go more towards the joyous side of the spectrum. Here he is thinking I'm high, that I've been smoking and like, I'm just laughing at him. Just making a completely worse situation out of what it really is. I don't know, that joy just is internal in a lot of the situations of my life. Yeah, I'm curious, where did that come from? This attitude, because this is the Eternal Optimist podcast, and you are someone who is just brimming with joy or brimming with something that is your identity is not your business. It's more around yeah. your family and your core. And I love that. And I'm curious, where did that originate, this joy that you have, Hunter? Yeah, you know, I think for me, first and foremost, like, it's my faith. You know, like, I think a lot of it comes from my faith, my belief in God, my belief in Christ. And I think as that trickles down into other things that kind of come out of that, it's like, I think God has just given me this unique gift to be there for people. I will be the one that shows up with a smile on my face when the house is burning to give people that energy, to give people that hope. It's not always there. Like there are times where it's like I mentally break down. And the biggest times that I break down is like my grandma died when I was in third grade. And I don't know that I've ever truly like dealt with that or processed it, or I don't really know what to think about it. But you know, to this day, when I see a picture or I talk about her, it usually just starts with tears. There was this moment at my wedding where they flashed a picture of my grandma and me sitting on her lap. And I just started crying for like a good 10 minutes during my, <laughs> during my wedding. It was just like, those are the moments I really lose it, but it takes a lot, a lot, a lot for me to get to that situation. It happened one more time in June. I had been in North Carolina for two weeks. Tabitha is like nine months pregnant. Our due date's July 4th. And I'm in North Carolina trying to save these businesses. And I just call my dad like crying. I don't want to be here anymore. And I don't care what happens anymore. Like if I go through bankruptcy, I go through bankruptcy, but like, I just want to be home. I just want to be with my family. It does come out, but I think those are some of the things that just where like it comes from. It just comes from, and I'm sure it's like also grew up in a pretty happy household. My parents are still together. I haven't suffered a bunch of loss and pain. That's my best explanation for some of it. Fantastic. I Thank you for sharing. You talk about being able to share that emotion or be able to process grief. And I'm 46 now. I wasn't able to really, truly cry until about 38 since we had our first child. Now, a stiff breeze, and I'll just start crying. Uh, <laughs> it's just different now being a parent. The experience you just described with your grandma, I have that experience with my dad. I mean, he died 18 years ago on Memorial Day, and start talking about him. I will normally generate some tears, but this inner joy place where your identity is not connected to your work. I'm so mm -hmm. glad to hear you voice those words. And for anyone out there listening, if you are high at the end of a day because your work was going great, 
or if you're incredibly low and take it out of the family because work was really, really bad that day, really challenging for you, just consider what Hunter is sharing, this idea of there are more important things than just the business. And if the business or the job or the career is hitting a stalling point and you've got to pivot, you have the most important things in your life, your family, the people you love, and your faith. I'm glad you mentioned those things. Yeah. You also mentioned your vision for the future, and you've said relentlessly just execute and help people, help the world. I love everything I'm hearing. So where is the next step? If you can envision that for us with us, Hunter, what do you see next? I've been working on it all day, actually. So it's kind of like the first, you know, this is the first soft launch of this, but it'll come out for about four to six weeks. So hopefully it'll be a little further along. It's been interesting because I had this original vision, this vision of impact industry to make a greater impact in the world through business. There was a lot of things that had to go right for me to be in this situation as well. It's like the story I told you about the two owners, the business becoming successful and providing capital to buy the businesses myself. Since all of this has happened and I started posting about my bankruptcy on X and Twitter, where you saw the story, so many people have reached out to me with their stories of worse situations, taxes being stolen by accountants, private equity firms trying to destroy your business, people who have bought businesses that decide they don't want to be a business owner. They're like, I don't want to be a business owner. This isn't for me. And it's like, well, you've got a personal guarantee now. Like, you got to figure it out. I've been going through bankruptcy, so I haven't really been able to start making money on a technical sense. But I think that it's the next chapter of my life. I am launching basically SMB turnarounds because what I realized is that in big corporate turnarounds, it's a lot different than small business turnarounds. There's a lot of different like factors, ways you can file bankruptcy, things that the bank does to you in big corporate turnarounds they don't do to you in, in small business turnarounds. I feel like I am taking all of this from the past four years, including the destruction, including the pain, including all of that, being this person that you're seeing on the screen, like to just show up and provide the energy and help that person know that one, even if it gets to bankruptcy, you're going to be okay. Your identity shouldn't be in your work. There's still going to be hope in the future. Let's try to make sure we don't get to that point as well. Essentially, I'm launching a small business advisory and, and restructuring firm to support other people that are going through the same situation that I've been through over the past two years. Unfortunately, I think more and more people are going to start to experience that as interest rates kind of hold and pain continues to come to the world. I have felt the impact over these last four months more after I've started posting about this and the transparency and people saying, hey, people don't talk about bankruptcy like this and so many messages of support and people getting to hear people's stories than I did over the four years of trying to buy a bunch of these businesses and run them. The momentum and just the progression, I think, is heading into that direction and kind of ticks all of the boxes of what I want to do and what I enjoy doing, where I get a lot of my energy from too, is just supporting those small business owners. So. Yeah, I appreciate that you have to go through the hard stuff to be able to well, get the experience, the knowledge, the confidence you need to get all that to be able to do what's going to happen next. So it's like you're going through the fire right now so you can emerge on the other side of the Phoenix so you can truly find that niche. And it's crazy because you have to sometimes you have to fail or you have to experience real hardship to learn from it so that, you know, I mean, you can look back in a decade from now and say, I'm so glad I went through that. 
that was the best thing that ever happened. That's true eternal optimism to me. I can feel it in you right now that you're experiencing that. So now I know you're still in it. You're still in the whole bankruptcy process. I'm curious, are you able to step back and look objectively at it and say, like, here are like the top three learned lessons I've taken from this that now I can go and coach people to, you know, what might that be? You know, I think, think the biggest one for me is a vision can be a really powerful thing, but it can also be a blinder. And when I created this vision and then I started relentlessly pursuing it, I never took the time to kind of revisit it. I just kept executing on it for the last four years. But I had a really successful marketing agency for the past three years that after I started buying all these other businesses, got less attention and neglect and also blew up this year as well. If I had just taken a moment to pause and not necessarily change the vision, but just realize that if I didn't buy these other businesses, like the marketing agency would have put five hundred to $750,000 in our bank accounts. That's the position we would have been in right now. And we would have been able to be impacting more people monetarily in that situation. I don't regret any of the things that I did, but I think vision is a very powerful drug which is good in certain situations. But it's like, if I would have just been like, oh, hey, I have this business. Let's just focus on this. And this is going to make the biggest impact. I think it might have been a different story than than me sitting right here talking about bankruptcy. That's number one. I think number two is I originally thought that I needed to have the most control in the businesses. Kind of going back to that original thesis of like, above average wages, above average returns, and go impact the world. A lot of times when you say like impact with investing, it doesn't really jive. Your investors want the highest maximum return. They don't really care whether you're supporting people. You can do that with your money, but not with their money, you know, that they've made an investment into you. And I don't think that's necessarily true. I think as I have just continued to build a network and continued to surround myself with people who are naturally inclined to want to impact the world, I think, and impact more than just their self and their family and just have this kind of service mindset to help others, that though there are things that go hand in hand with partnerships and being able to do more with other people and bringing more people into the vision and the right capital and the right partners and all of that. I just don't think I took the time to actually seek that out. I think I just had this idea and I didn't test it, I think, thoroughly. As I move forward, I just want to work with really good people who want to do really good things. And that's going to give me the most energy. And I think that's going to make the the biggest impact in the world. And then lastly, I think leverage is an interesting thing. Leverage gives you the least amount of opportunity to make mistakes. I don't think it's necessarily wrong. It's just a different strategy. It's like venture capital, it's They basically take on a bunch of money so they can make the most amount of mistakes possible with the hopeful outcome that they (laughs) they get to like pay for those mistakes over and over. Whereas when you take on 80 to 90% leverage of a business that had zero leverage prior, it's not the same business. I think that's the biggest thing that doesn't get talked about is like, it is not the same business after you add leverage to it, whether it's your cash flow cycles or your capital expenditures, anything that you have to do with money gets increasingly harder If you make one mistake, it's like, oh, now we don't have enough money to like reinvest into a new truck. And now our truck's about to break down. So it just creates the smallest room for air. I think my original thesis was I needed to use leverage in order to really control everything, make the the biggest impact in the world. 
if I would have maybe slowed down a little bit and taken more equity and brought on more equity partners, I think I might have been able to make a, a larger impact and ultimately achieve the, the mission because it just gives you a little bit more room to mess up and we all mess up. So I think with that, you can't really mess up. Otherwise, you're going to end up in the same situation as me and my large client and all the other people that are going through bankruptcy right now. It's just there's a really small room for error in that situation. Yeah. These lessons you've learned are kind of forging you or refining how you achieve that vision, that mission. You're now more focused on doing it, maybe not so proactively, aggressively by acquiring all of them first. Let's get this one here. Let's get the right people. Let's get some other partners in. I mean, there are so many things you just shared that you, again, you had to learn this to get to this place. What might be some of the qualities of the people that you're looking to do business with and partner with as you move forward to achieve the vision to help the world? Yeah, I mean, I think there's like very practical ones of like people who have this idea that kids are a burden instead of a treasure. I don't want those people on my team, honestly. Like, you know, it's like (laughs) there's some of these influencers out here that are like, my life is so good and there's so many things that I want to accomplish that kids would prevent me from accomplishing the biggest dreams that I have. I don't want those people on my team. I think they probably push the world forward. But if I had to choose that person or like Elon Musk, who, you know, I don't know if you've read his book where it's like his child's on the table in the conference room where he's having this big meeting. It's like people who think that kids are a burden, I think are inherently selfish. And I just don't want those selfish people on my team. Those are things, you know, that I I look for. I think from just a more practical standpoint is... I'm still young, you know, in my career. I think having a good set of people who have been in the space before and are almost mentors, but also could come along and partner and play a role in the story moving forward. I think those people are just really important to ultimately for me to continue to learn as well and continue to be willing to hop in there. And I think in more areas than just business, ideally, when you come in and have partners, they're not just challenging you in being the best business person, but being ultimately the person, that best person in all areas of your life. People who do have a myopic focus on business and put everything else outside, I think it just doesn't lead to just the most satisfying life. I don't think that that's my area of going after it. So yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. Totally with you on this, man. We mentioned Justin Donald earlier, who's a peer, he's a good friend, uh, also a mentor and a coach and someone love to do business and be in business with him. And also from the other masterminds we're in, my buddy Eric Van Horn, my mentor, Mark Victor Hansen. These are people that I want to do life with that share these values. Definitely the first one you shared that the kids are not a nuisance. They're not a burden. We are blessed to have them here to guide them and shape them. I'm not here to tell them what to do. I'm here to show some of the values and model that and they will learn by what they see. I love that you have that. So we started with the vision to pay above average and to earn above average returns and impact the world. If you were to fast forward, let's say 20 years, what impact might you want to be having on the world if you thought about uh, anything crystallized around where that impact leads you, Hunter? Yeah, you know, I think two things you could probably tell are like kids are really important. Even before all of this, even before we had kids, my wife and I just have always had a you know, a, a heart for kids. You know, unfortunately, the <laughs> the businesses blew up before we got to the impact side of impact industry. My wife and I would love to just leave a legacy in this world as like impacting kids and communities. As we draw on this canvas, 
we are doubling down on our community here in Northwest Puerto Rico. And I foresee us continuing to double down on in this area and this community. And hopefully we can expand that to other communities that we've been to around the world. And then I think just, I live with an all kids are my kids attitude, which is like, if your child is not speaking kindly, I'm going to say, hey, let's use some kind words. Some parents are like, oh, don't tell my children what to do. And I'm like, yeah, all kids are my kids. I want that same thing for others too. There is a right way. There is a way that I think we can support everybody. And so if I can not only impact my kids, but just be a light and a good example and a role model for any kids that are in my life, I, you know, I want to be that. That's, uh, I would say those are two big buckets that we focus on. I'm in the same boat as you, my friend. Uh, I'm thinking about uh, the impact I want to have is definitely through our, our children. And to go so far is to say that on our wall right now in the kitchen, we have this chart up and the value of the week that we're checking in. And everyone gets a check mark or an X at the end of every day. The value of the week right now is are we using loving and kind words with ourselves and with others? Yeah, uh, I love that. Yeah, that's what's happening right now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And as you're speaking, my, my child is coming into the room right now to come and say hi. Yeah. Uh, she's smacking me on the arm right now. Hey, Carol. Yeah. No, bring her in. Hi. Yeah, go do that. You can go do that. Thank you. This is, see, I love that, that. This is something that if the, had that would have happened like eight years ago, that would yeah. have been me muting out and being very stern and loud <laughs> and aggressive. And now it's like, it's not a hassle or burden. It's, it's just not. kids being kids. And it's how they learn, right? It's oh. just like, I'm going to tread into some like uncharted waters that it's like the screen time at dinner at restaurant. Okay. If you have a, a vision for like, let's say you want your kids in 30 years when they're 30 and have kids, what do you want the dinner table to look like? Or what do you want the dinner table to be? I think everybody would agree that it's like people talking to each other, telling them about their day, sharing, all of that. When you start so young, just here's a screen. They're never able to learn that. They're never able to get to that point. I say that coming from a place where we let privilege, whatever you want to call it. You know, there might be parents that need some time alone and that might be the only way but the first time that you give it to them is going to be the next time that you're going to give it to them it is the moments that my kids and i have had at restaurants and then just learning to be good humans and ordering their own food and learning to discuss their day it just doesn't change there's no way for them to learn other than them learning Every interaction with the child, if you view it through that lens, it's an opportunity mm -hmm. to create good people into the world. And when they're at a dinner mm -hmm. table in 30 years and it's with some of the best people in the world, it's like you want them to talk to them and ask questions and try to learn in that situation. So that is something that I'm not afraid to say. It. <laughs> I think we're aligned on this one, Hunter. And we both come from places. This is not a place of judgment of anyone out there. Anyway, it's an idea that at our tables, we're going to choose to have screen free and do our best to connect. Uh, yeah. and I, I'm with you on this one. I'm with you on this one. I, I think about the times and I, I go back five years. I think about the time when my daughter was four and the very first time she asked to see the phone at the table, we were at a restaurant. It was because I was on my phone. So she asked to see it and then she wanted to be on her phone. And what are they learning from us? Are they seeing that I'm playing a mindless game all the time? Are they seeing that I'm scrolling all the time? And the answer, even for us adults in the house is no, because our family policy is that when my wife and I are home and the kids are home, and that's from roughly like four to 7.30 at night, 
we don't have screens unless we do it together. It's yeah. one screen. Yeah, I'm with you on the screen concept. I, for sure. I like I like that of nothing unless we're together. It, yeah, I'm going to think about adding that. We do movie nights on Friday and airplanes, they get screen time. And it's the best thing because our kids don't get a lot of screens. But when they're on an airplane, we know that they're going to be good. We, we know that we're not going to have looks at us all the time on an airplane. But yeah, those are the two big times when we indulge in screens. I want full transparency. We are indulging the heck out of screens <laughs> on the road trip when we drive five hours to see my mom. Like we're yeah. definitely using tablets. So it's yeah. not a perfect science. Uh, yeah, you yeah. can't just shut the screens out altogether. But I remember when I was growing up, when I was in fifth grade, 10 years old, I got my first Nintendo, Legend of Zelda, and Mike Tyson's Punch-Out. And I was glued to that thing a couple hours a day. Still, my parents kicked me out of the house, said, go play sports or go do something outside. <laughs> and we still did that. Yeah, so, yeah. And there can be a fair mixture of balance. But we like to keep it away from the, uh, the dinner table for yeah. sure. Yeah. And we don't do the screens the morning before school either. So... Hunter, how do we find out more about you? Social media or any place that we can follow you, learn from you? Yeah, my social is Hunter C. Durham. That's where you can find me. I'm most active on X, Twitter, whatever we're calling that nowadays. Feel free to email me. I still got my email, hunter at impactindustry.marketing. Would love to talk to as many people as possible. If you're going through these times, feel free to reach out on Twitter or via email. Yeah, I'd say that's really what I want to be doing right now is spending as much time of my day just supporting and, and helping others and letting them know that there's another side. It's why we have great bankruptcy laws in the U.S. It's why we take risk as entrepreneurs. It's why we try to make a better life for our family is because we got some protections here in the U.S. and it's the best country in the world to be able to do that. And so a lot of my time by the time this podcast comes out is will be focused on just making sure that people know what happens in these situations and know what happens when things start going wrong. Fantastic. Well, Hunter, we have made it through here to the lightning round to wrap things up. And I've got three questions to ask to put a bow on this thing. And I'd love to ask you first, if you are a book guy, what might be one to three books that have inspired or given you some knowledge or wisdom in your life? My favorite is Gulliver's Travels. For people who have not read that recently, it is just a masterclass on perspective. And I don't care what age you are, you can learn perspective from that book. Just the idea of going from a world where he's the smallest and looking up at larger humans and he's the biggest and looking down at smaller humans. And then he's in the world of the homonyms and he's just trying to learn their language and trying to fit in. And then the critique of the technological society and the critiques of everything that it has is... I don't know. I think it is a beautiful picture of perspective in our world and that there's not a lot of right answers. There's just answers. Mm. What you might think from your perspective could be something completely different from another perspective. So that's my go-to answer. I'm a big Gulliver's Travels guy. Awesome. Thank you. How about music? Is there a song or an artist or a genre that fills your bucket that inspires you? Oh, uh, man. I'm going to get in trouble for this. I. <laughs> my theory is... I balance my like optimism out with angry music and my wife who's like oh. more, you know, <laughs> so I balance mine out with angry music. So like I love a day to remember Eminem tech night. Like I balance out my, my optimism with angry music. So that's how I justify it. What an exceptional answer. That's the first <laughs> time I've ever heard an answer like that in 140 episodes. Thank you. Amazing. Uh, well, I'm really curious to answer this last question. Uh, this is the Eternal Optimist podcast. And when I say the words eternal optimist, what does that mean to you, Hunter? 
I don't have a great answer for this one other than the fact that like I think it does not matter how much things are going wrong there's always something good to find there's always joy to be found in any situation and even to the point of I am a huge believer of finding joy through suffering when you suffer with people it could be a grueling hike a really long run a workout class with others a death of a family member when you suffer with other people the things that come out of that suffering i think provide a lot of the joy i think that is to me what eternal optimism ultimately is we get joy even through suffering as humans if you're like not finding meaning in your life it probably means that you should choose suffering if you have the choice of easy or suffer choose suffering because eventually suffering's going to come And so when suffering comes, it's you, if you've chosen it a bunch of times before, you ultimately know how to go through that suffering with joy and with a perspective and with that opportunity. That's what it means to me. There's always joy to be found through suffering. Mm-hmm.